Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hey, Lori, how's it going today? Hi, Tom. I'm doing really well. How are things with you? Uh, they're good. Yeah. Um, late, late summer, early fall in Chicago is a very nice time of year, alternating between, you know, rain and cold, which I like because I like the fall. And um, 70, over 70s, low 80 days. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite the mix, but it's good. It's good. And the kids are back in school and kind of getting back into the rhythm of things. So yeah, kind of just, I don't know, just, just the fall in Chicago with three kids. Well, um, new season, new us, because we are starting um, our new series today. And I guess we, I don't know, have we revealed who our author is that we're going to be focused on? We did um, last in the first episode of the season, um, which I hope everyone dug into and enjoyed and has had a moment to re-chronicle The Murdered House. Once again, Lori, I'm very glad that you finally forced me to read a book that's been sitting on my shelf for years because it's so good. It's so campy and so wonderful. But yeah, we mentioned it last episode that we will be reading pretty much all of uh, Muriel Spark. And wow, we are off to a good start. We're going to be going through her 22 novels chronologically. And so we are starting with The Comforters today. And it's a great place to start. I'd only ever read uh, the prime of Miss Jean Brody before wanted to read more. And when we were thinking about what author to tackle next, we knew we wanted to do a woman and we brainstormed a bit and came up with this and wow, I, this, this is an incredible debut novel. Yeah. I had not read anything by Miro Spark. So, uh, we were kind of rolling the dice a little bit with this commitment to 22 novels and who knows, maybe, maybe I would absolutely hate the writing style or what have you. And to be frank, I wasn't that worried and I had no reason to be. This is an incredible book. I, I finished it and for the purposes of not, not reading ahead, as it were, I did not immediately launch into the next one, which I believe is Robinson, but I... I I am so excited just to keep going with all of her books. This is one of the most fertile imaginations I've encountered in some time. It's just such an incredible writing style. We've had very, very good luck with uh, debuts, I think, in our recommendations so far. I mean, I think we just have, you know, good antennae, very good taste, if I do say so for us myself. But th this is... I don't know. Uh, I, of the debuts we've we've done on this podcast, this might be my favorite, quite frankly. It's just such a shockingly, shockingly good, funny, deep, incredible book. But I think before we get going, Lori, you're going to give us a little bit of context, a little bit of a elevator bio on uh, Muriel Spark. Yeah, I thought it might be uh, nice to do that. I really didn't know much about her life before we decided to undertake this uh, deep dive into her work. The Comforters, her debut novel, was published in 1957. But let me um, go back to the beginning. So Muriel Spark was born in Edinburgh in 1918. She taught at a private school 
later finding employment as a personal secretary. In 1937, she went to Southern Rhodesia to marry, returning to England in 1944 after her divorce. She then entered the political intelligence department of the British Foreign Office and worked on various forms of subtle propaganda. Her first interest was in poetry, and after World War II, she became general secretary of the Poetry Society and editor of Poetry Review. Her own collected poems, One, was published in 1967. In 1951, she won a short story competition run by The Observer, and from then on, she also wrote fiction. Spark traveled widely and lived in Italy until her death. She received several honorary degrees, some in Oxford and London, and many in Scotland, and was elected a Companion of Literature by the Royal Society of Literature and an honorary member of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. She was made a Dame of the British Empire in 1993. She died on April 15, 2006. Our listeners can't see our faces, obviously, but when uh, Lori mentioned the work that Muriel went into for uh, the British government at towards the end of World War II, uh, she kind of glanced up from her page at me with a little bit of a smirk and a twinkle as we both think, uh, think immediately back to your face tomorrow to, <laughs> va- to, to vow to all those things. And I don't know, the kind of marvelous uh, serendipities that happen in a uh, in a reading life, I think. I mean, in life in general, but there's something about, there's something about books that things kind of come back around again when you're, when you're rather least expecting them. Yeah. Kind of neat, I think. Well, this short bio, and I'll credit the British Council, their literature pages for uh, the summary that I just read. And I, I kind of paraphrase some of it, but I really want to read about her life now. I mean, this this like raises more questions than it answers. Like move to Southern Rhodesia to marry and then like come back to to London seven years later because you divorced. I mean, she was a, she converted Catholicism to to get married, which puts her in this tradition of British writers who converted to Catholicism. And then that becomes an aspect of their private and public lives in very interesting ways, which also dovetails with some of the action in the comforters. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's a lot. I mean, it's a hell of a life. She charted a good chunk of the British empire simply like in her, which it feels like a lot of people did in that time period. But there's so much about her time that she seems to have lived in. And I'm trying to think of how exactly I'm phrasing it. Cause it kind of, cuts into a point I want to make about the novel eventually, or maybe I'll just, I'll just start. I think in some ways this novel is uh, her jamming together and bringing together so many elements of uh, British writing tradition, so many different kinds of novels into, into one really beautiful streamlined and I'll just say a masterpiece. And I feel like there are elements of her personal life that I don't know, just, just hearing that, I would like to read more to know if this is accurate, if I'm putting too much into it. This is like the initial blush of being so excited by a writer. But there are are elements of her personal life that seem to also kind of chart and pick up a lot of the elements of being British, Uh, you know, born in Scotland, lived in Southern Rhodesia, 
settle basically in London until she eventually moves to Italy, if I remember correctly from some other things I read. Her life seems to pull together so many of those threads as well. That was a very ram- rambly way of doing it. So I'm going to be quiet for a moment. Well, and won't it be fascinating, Tom? Um, I- I'm excited because we'll get to see she published novels over the course of 45 years. The Comforters was was published in 1957. And of course, that's the novel we'll be talking about today. Her final novel called The Finishing School was published in 2004. And it's just going to be really fascinating to just kind of watch what she does with these works over the course of of 45 years. It's so cool. 22 novels over 45 years is a hell of a clip. I mean, that's basically a novel every two years. So even more to your point, Lori, like we're going to be getting almost a check-in every every 24 months or so on where where she's at, where where her writing life is, all of those things. I mean, it's it's very cool. It's very neat. And it tracks, you know, the last half of the 20th century. Like that's a pretty phenomenal, impressive, interesting thing as well. I mean, outside of like the genre fiction, which I think I mentioned in the past, I, I hate that distinction, but it's useful for its purpose. Outside of like the genre fiction writers, how many literary novel? what literary novelists publish every two years that you can think of at this point? Does, does, I mean, I guess Brian Washington is almost at that clip currently in terms of like the newer crop, but yeah, I would guess that he's about to slow down. Colson Whitehead, maybe. Yeah. Um, he's, I feel like Colson's much more in like, he uh, publishes in rushes, right? Like it feels like he goes quiet for four-ish years and then there'll be like three novels in five years and then he goes quiet for a little bit. But it's 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 totally one thing I think to publish five novels in 10 years, you know, at a, at you know, the clip of of one novel every other year, but to sustain that for 45 years. To ma- to maintain that is is I mean, it's wild. It feels like madness. Like it, it feels like some kind of like logoria almost. But I don't know, like if this first novel is anything to go by, and I think it is, this might be the most like impressive divine form of logoria I've ever encountered, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's really awesome. And, you know, um, as we embark on talking about the comforters, you know, one of the, one of the words that I use to describe this novel is a crime caper. And it is that, but it's also so much more. So I wouldn't at all call the Comforters a a genre novel. It's it's not it's not a, a mystery by any stretch. But I don't know, Tom. Do you do you agree with the term crime caper as one only one of possible many ways to describe this novel? Well, I mean, I think this is a multifaceted novel. Like, I mean, I think Crime Caper is absolutely a way to describe it. It's also got elements of the ghost story to it. In the descriptions of some of the settings, there's almost a gothic quality at times. Um, this is And this is kind of what I was trying to, to get at earlier, that uh, she is pulling in so many different kinds of novels into this, into this one book. And it is, 
so dialogue heavy. It is so driven by the conversations and but not even just the conversations, the elisions um, of what people are saying, what they're withholding, but also what what the writer, whoever that might be of this novel, <laughs> is is withholding. The first chapter sets it up as sort of a, I'm not even sure what, like a, a visit to the countryside. And then within the first two pages of the second chapter, everything that took place in that first chapter is completely turned on its head. And suddenly you're dealing with a completely different understanding of what one of the characters was observing as he was interacting with all these other people who continue to appear and peel back like onions all of their layers throughout the rest of the rest of the novel. I think Crime Caper works really, really well. And maybe even locked box mystery. Um, I think there's a, a lot of that going on there, there too. Well, maybe let's start at the beginning and talk about uh, the opening scenes when Lawrence is visiting his grandmother, Jap. It opens with Lawrence waking up to his grandmother chatting with a baker, basically, and asking for clearly making like a different order than she usually does and explaining because it's her her grandson is there. And Lawrence Manders is visiting his grandmother, Louisa Jap, in the countryside. He seems to have a job on the radio. He is on holiday. And I, it's said immediately that he's very inquisitive and, and snoopy. He likes to get into other people's business. He likes to figure everything out about what's going on around him. Once again, we're dealing with people who like to read into other people's lives, as it were. And I and I thought at first when they were talking about him kind of like snooping around the room um, before he goes downstairs for breakfast that you know, is this, is this an 11, 12 year old kid? Like who is this? But, but Lawrence is, I don't know, 20, 23, something like that. I would actually put it a little, I almost feel later than that. I would say like 25 at the youngest. I mean, it just seems like there's enough. And as it progresses the the history between um, Caroline are soon to be introduced, uh, frankly, like lead, lead character. I don't know. That's a hard thing to apply in this novel. Um, but uh, his history with Caroline suggests that they they have to be in their mid twenties at this point, at the at the very youngest. But yeah, he very much comes across as as a precocious um, preteen getting into everyone else's business, uh, almost an encyclopedia encyclopedia Brown type. It feels like at times. And it would be almost impossible to explain to our listeners who haven't read this book how unique of a character Louisa Jap is. First off, it, it's important, I think, to point out that Lawrence is is quite a wealthy young man. His father is founder and CEO, I guess you would say, of Manders Figs and Syrup, which apparently is a big, uh, a big thing, a big delicacy in England. And the family's kind of made their name and fortune on that particular product. But Louisa Jap lives very modestly outside of London, uh, in the country, like you said. And really, although they fuss at her and they want to give her money and help support her, and they clearly have the means to do so, she rejects all that. She seems very self-contained and very in control of her environment, of, I mean, just of her life. Uh, She does not seem to need any money from her daughter and 
uh, son-in-law, she just seems kind of, and doesn't, it's not like she's contented. It just seems like she's independent, which on top of how she speaks and conducts herself and a lot more of what we find out about her, she just comes across as the coolest 78-year-old you're ever going to you're ever going to meet, you're ever going to encounter. Um, a quick note on the the Manders um, family line of business. Um, I actually picked up a uh, fig and manchego croissant this morning to use as dessert tonight at a bakery across from my kid's school. And it didn't even freaking occur to me until this moment what I'd done and like what I just read. So I'm, I'm amused by that too. Oh, that sounds delicious. But one of my, speaking of the figs and syrup, one of my favorite little anecdotes, and there's so many when it comes to Louisa Jap, is that she one day just sends her own homemade figs and syrup to uh, the Manders family so that they can try her homemade recipe, which kind of it made me laugh and was seemed like maybe, you know, sending your homemade ketchup to the Heinz family or something. If you're married into the Heinz family at that, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, it's it's very funny. You can view it however you want. It's a tongue-in-cheek shot, like, you know, just sort of gentle jibing. It's a shot across the bow. It's whatever the person wants to take it as. And I feel like Louisa Jap knows that knows every register of the uh, of the meaning of that particular gift. Yeah, she's a fantastic, fantastic character. And this is maybe jumping the gun ever so slightly. This is a novel that deals with religion, Catholicism in particular, but also conversion. And Lawrence has fallen away from the church. Louisa is not part of the church. Her daughter, Helena, converted in order to marry Edwin Manders. Their son, Lawrence, as I just said, is, was raised in the church and seems to have fallen away from it. And then Caroline, who came up just a few moments ago, is a recent convert to the church, which has complicated her and uh, Lawrence's personal relationship more than a bit. But again, I'm jumping, I think I may be jumping the gun ever so slightly. So, so Snoop, Snoopy Lawrence is hanging out with grandma, kind of taking a break from London. And you get the sense that it's a little bit of a break from this kind of more recent pulling apart that his love interest, Caroline, has instigated because she's feeling that she wants to be closer to the church and maybe even become a nun or, you know, devote her life to religion. But Lawrence doesn't waste time while he's staying with his grandmother to kind of, I guess you could say, pick up some suspicions about what the heck his grandmother might be up to. And she she's the, the least uh, character that I, I would think that Lawrence might assume would be up to something devious but nonetheless it seems he's got his suspicions yeah this bridge group that he comes across with his grandmother uh mr webster uh, the baker whom he heard earlier in the day and a father and son uh, mervyn and andrew it just seems weird to him this this grouping and after he leaves the room they have this very odd conversation about well, your grandson being here is complicated. Should we postpone things? And like, almost like skull and dagger and like, you know, like, uh, uh, but what could they possibly be getting up to? And so Lawrence is snooping and his suspicions, you know, seem to have some founding, 
but what precisely it is um, isn't revealed until he sends a uh, letter to Caroline as to what exactly he thinks is is going on. Oh, and just as another callback to our previous season, uh, there are a lot of missed letters uh, and, and not misaddressed, but um, folks reading letters that they shouldn't read, um, letters that don't quite make it to the person they're supposed to, leading to catastrophic results. I don't know. It's uh, almost a shame that in the in this day and age of email and text message and the like, the uh, the potential for a missive gone awry uh, has been reduced rather substantially. Well, and there's no reason for the reader to kind of think it at the time, but two of the bridge party, Mervyn and Andrew Hoagland, and their their last name is significant here. Mervyn, it seems, is is a single father, and Andrew is his crippled adult son. And they, I think, particularly kind of raise Lawrence's like radar. Like th- this, these these two just seem seem weird. And how does my grandmother know them? And <laughs> and why are they talking while I'm present here in this rather cryptic way? So I suppose, like, I mean, my initial statement of that in his snooping that eventually it comes comes true that there's something going on there that it seemed a little bit out of nowhere. I don't know. I think when I was initially reading that first chapter, I was still kind of getting my bearings as to what was going on. I think this is a good moment to talk about uh, at least her style in this novel. Spark has an incredibly light touch. There's a way in which this novel just sort of like tumbles along leaving you to sort of realize what you've read maybe a few paragraphs later. And I think that's just a function of how tightly structured and written like its construction is so, so good. But there are definitely moments in reading this novel where I felt like I got multiple pages and then suddenly realized that a sentence I'd read four pages previous was turning the key on an element of the story that we hadn't even known was there yet. This is just a brilliantly put together work. It's it's something incredibly special in that regard. So we switch to Caroline and Caroline is hanging out in a Benedictine priory, you know, kind of I guess wearing her hair shirt for lack of a better term. She's she's, you know, sleeping in a in a cold room, you know, being served gruel with these kind of depressing cast of characters one of whom she knows from being involved with Lawrence. And this is a woman named Georgiana Hogg. And I would say from my perspective, these characters are almost universally appealing to me. That they've they've they're so they're so quirky and have such interesting personalities. There's not much to like though about Georgiana Hogg. No, uh, not at all. Caroline's immediate reaction to Georgina is, I don't even think revulsion is quite right. I mean, it's immediate distrust and distaste. And it's not entirely because of her her physical presence, though that's suggested to be not exactly the greatest. Um, it's much more that there's a, a meanness of spirit, a bullying nature that is immediately evident in how Hog interacts with everyone else around her, how she tries to control or insinuate control over Caroline um, very, very quickly, very early in their interactions. 
leading, frankly, to Caroline just leaving, like seeing that there's that she, whatever she is there to get out of this experience is not going to happen in no small part because of Georgina Hogg's presence. Yeah, Georgina Hogg, I guess I couldn't quite tell. I believe that she's just volunteering at the at the monastery, but perhaps she has a real job. I don't know, but she's around all the time and she's very judgy. And in particular with Caroline, she's very judgy about her uh relationship with Lawrence and the and the romantic relationship that they had and you know how that's not really wholesome and and godly in in Georgiana's um viewpoint. Well she also takes some shots at the fact that Caroline's a convert. I mean there's I couldn't point to the exact passage, but there there there's almost a suggestion that Caroline doesn't quite understand things as well as she would if she weren't a convert, the way that Georgina kind of gets it. Again, this is the the bullying, the the controlling nature that the assumption that because Georgina has been in the faith either since the start or for a much longer time that she knows better than than Caroline. And as we learn more about Georgina Hogg and how she has lived her life and kind of who and what she is, that becomes even more apparent that like she's someone who has been trying to control the people around her for a very long time and in some ways hides behind other people's charity, other people's kindness while really offering none of that to any, I mean, like you said, she's not (laughs) at all a pleasant or attractive character, although a brilliantly constructed one in, in how unattractive she actually is. Well, and you, Tom talked about how vibrant the dialogue is in, in this book, but Spark has a really interesting eye for detail. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to, Read a short passage here. This is from the point of view of of Caroline. The little parlor in the Benedictine Priory smelt strongly of polish. The four chairs, the table, the floors, the window frame gleamed in repose of the polish, as if these wooden things themselves had done some hard industry that day before dawn. Outside, the late October sun lit up the front garden strip, and Caroline, while she waited in the parlor, could hear the familiar incidents of birds and footsteps from the suburban street. She knew this parlor well, with its polish. She had come here weekly for three months to receive her instruction for the church. She watched a fly alight on the table for a moment. It seemed to Caroline to be in a highly dangerous predicament, as if it might break through the glossy surface on which it skated, that it made off quite easily. It's just... The writing is just so great. It's stunning, right? I mean, it's it gives you insight almost into Caroline, like what she notices, what she takes in. It grounds the scene so thoroughly that the conversation that's t- to take place, you can see it, you can feel it. Uh, it's, I mean, a debut novel, really. Like this is this is an old hands work. This is someone who knows their craft incredibly well. Yeah, it's it's. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. Maybe all authors should spend some time in Southern Rhodesia um, in their in their uh, youth to kind of <laughs> become a great writer. I, I mean, living a, 
<laughs> living um, broadly, <laughs> living a lot probably helps quite a bit, I suppose. To be fair, she wasn't a kid when when this when this novel was was written. I mean, she was born in 1918, and this was published in 1957. So right. she, she had some lived experience, but yeah, for a first novel. The writing is really exceptional. And obviously, like being, you know, the journal secretary of the Poetry Society and editing the Poetry Review, like she she more than had her chops, right? But it's still something for a a debut to have worked out so many of the kinks. I mean, this would be, if you told me this was her fifth novel, I, I wouldn't bat an eye. You know, it just, it feels... It feels expert, and that's not something that you often like come across with debuts. Usually, there's a rough edge or two, a a moment or two that you kind of wonder about a storyline that doesn't seem entirely necessary. All this is a very, it's a very tightly written. And what's funny is that in a way we are talking about it as as if it, in some ways, is a um, more in the realist tradition. And like, I mean, we're talking so much about the structure and how tight it is and, and all these things, but very quickly spark throws a lot of curveballs at us right down to the very, (laughs) a character questioning and bringing this to other characters, uh, their existence as an actual person and not just a character in a work of fiction. Yeah. So in addition to kind of trying to be a a devout Catholic, Caroline is also writing a book and she's writing a nonfiction book on the form of the novel. And she's been writing this for some time. Um, she's lately kind of gotten a bit frustrated and hasn't been able to focus on it as much as she might like. But when she leaves the Priory, mostly, as you said, because she doesn't want to hang out with Georgiana Hogg anymore. And, and Miss Hogg is like, you know, camped out of the Priory because of the work that she's doing there. She goes home and she starts hearing voices while she's trying to sleep. And these voices are so disturbing to her that she leaves the house in the middle of the night and she goes to visit her her very interesting friend and Lawrence's friend too, a guy named the Baron. So I don't know, where do you want to tackle first here, Tom? The, the voices in Caroline's head or the Baron? Well, I think let's start with the voices because it's not just voices. She's also hearing a typewriter and she hears the click. It almost seems to introduce itself with a click clack. And then the typewriter, she can hear... She feels like she's hearing one voice in different registers. Um, so just this sort of cacophony, but she feels it's one person speaking, just trying out different tones and whatnot. Um, but what <laughs> what the voice is doing is narrating her actions, the actions around her. And for our purposes as the reader, the voice is repeating what we've already read. Um, or what we're about to read. And she can't, she hears it outside. It sounds like it's just outside her room. She can't figure out what's going on. And she flees to the Baron because she knows Lawrence is off with his grandmother. Um, and the Baron keeps very odd hours. So she assumes that he'll be awake. But these voices don't stop. And 
they bother her once she's able to start figuring out exactly what she's hearing and how it functions and how it's describing her um, because it starts to make her question what what is happening here what am i why is this voice suggesting that i am somehow part of a narrative of a fiction and for everyone else around her they uh, they all take different views on what's happening to her mostly fairly benign actually um a lot of the reaction the baron's reaction for the most part is eh we're all a little mad you know, this is just your way of expressing your madness. So be it. But it, eventually she begins to call it the typing ghost. And after a pretty significant event in the midway point of the book, she seemingly comes to peace with it. Or at least she's attempting to work around and with and through it and take advantage of it. Um, and doesn't really bring it up to anyone other than Baron um, after that point. It's presented in such a way that in other novels, it would very much come across as the first sign that this person is having some kind of a break. And certainly to some some characters in the novel, it is the suggestion of a break of some kind, right? But it is so clever. And what sh- what what the voice repeats to Caroline is so specific that it is subverting the very novel that it is a part of. It is altering the course of the novel by its presence, which is so, so, so cool. Such a cool, like, neat trick. I don't know, Lori, like, we both read a lot, and we read some really great stuff, and we read some not-so-great stuff, and I had a childlike glee reading this novel and just letting Spark take me through the paces of what what she wanted to do and what she wanted to to have fun with. I mean, it, it feels like a novel that was fun to write, that she was having fun with. And with the purpose of it was fun and was joy, which, I don't know, in the context of like writing in Britain at the time, I mean, this is the period of the angry young men, uh, John Osborne, um, Alan Silito's collection is, I think gets published two years later or something like that, that features the loneliness of the long distance runner. You've got that going on. And then you have this thing drop in and it's, it's such a wildly different, different kind of uh, work of fiction. Yeah. And as you brought up Tom in kind of our back and forth um, as we were preparing for this episode, the meta elements of this book are just so fun because, you know, of course, Caroline is trying to write this book about the form of the novel. So that's in her head. And then she's got this kind of voice uh, with an accompanying typewriter sound that's kind of telling her what is happening in her own life as if her life were, were like a novel or were a novel. And the things that it it kind of reports to her are things that really explore these various aspects of the form of the novel. It's just, it's, it's just really damn smart. So Caroline goes to see the Baron and they had this conversation. The Baron is presented as a, you know, another not quite English Englishman. He is 
from the Belgian Congo. I think they establish he loves seems to love all things English because of their eccentricity, and he goes becomes even and he's especially eccentric. He had been living with a woman named Eleanor Hogarth, which is your first kind of clue as a reader that things are about to start intersecting in very strange ways. But I mean, his presence in the novel because he appears to be an eventually comes out that part of the reason Eleanor left him was because she's convinced that he is a, uh, they keep calling it uh, diabolist, but what we would probably in the States just call a strip Satanist, um, that he is playing um, the organ at uh, black masses for uh, Satanist, Satanist uh, rituals. Um, and eventually it comes out that he's just interested in the psychology of it, or so he claims. But this is this is one of the first points of contact, or really the primary point of contact we get with Lawrence and Caroline's life before her convert, her conversion. They were living together. Helena, uh, Lawrence's mother, who plays a very large role in this novel, and this is, and I think this is something like I just want to like get out there. We are not going to be able to cover even a portion of what happens in this. This is 214 pages, and it feels like, as I'm thinking about how much we would have to cover, it feels like some people's 500 page you know master work like there's just so much here and so many characters and so much life i mean she makes these people real in some really significant and interesting ways um so there's a lot we're going to skip read it like read it listen to this read it come back and listen to it again this this is just there's so much happening in this novel but um so they were to Lawrence and Caroline were together. His mother kind of made peace with it. Uh, they actually describe her Catholicism as the kind that sort of fits everything into place, so that she doesn't have cause to really be offended by anything. She may not like something, but she just sort of accepts it and moves on, which clearly has rubbed off on on Lawrence and and his way of moving through the world. But the Baron was part of this bougie, you know, hipstery intelligentsia set that uh, Lawrence and Caroline were a part of. And he seems to be the one that they they are both most comfortable with and, and still really in contact with. He owns a bookstore, which makes him by default cool, I would say. You think that if Lawrence were in town, she would have like run to Lawrence's, you know, when, when she got freaked out about hearing these voices in the middle of the night. She does go to the Baron and she's in the midst of this devoting or possibly devoting her life to the, you know, to the Catholic church and trying to be more devout. And then you've got the Baron who she goes to for, for succor and comfort. And he is an occultist who is obsessed with black magic. And, and you're right that, <laughs> that he does, he says that, you know, it's just an academic thing with him. He just finds it fascinating. He doesn't, he doesn't really participate in, in the rituals for the sake of any kind of belief system that he has, but the, the contrast is interesting. And also the fact that they can still very much maintain a, a, a friendship, you know, even though they seem to be like on, on opposite ends of this, of this spiritual arc and, and Lawrence and, and, and she also, you know, they're friends with, with benefits at this point, I guess you would say, since they, since they're not living together anymore, but the whole issue of religion and Lawrence's father is, is also a very devout guy that goes and, 
takes these retreats from time to time and just like leaves the family, leaves the city and goes to a monastery and, and hangs out for, you know, for weeks at a time. It's kind of this, this thing that everyone's used to him doing, I think at least once a year. By the time Edwin uh, Manders is like himself, a character, not just someone spoken about, it's towards the end of the novel. And I think it's much more than once a year at this point. It seems like he is almost monthly taking off. I mean, he has stepped back as the day-to-day um, uh, manager of the family company. Still, you know, the owner, founder, what have you. But he is not the CEO at this point because he's never there. He's always... And, and he reflects that he would not have made it as a religious, that there are so many elements of religious life that don't sit with him. But this idea of almost vacationing, like he vacations to monasteries, to retreats, to pilgrimages. As you're saying, there's so many different reflections of religious life and the expressions thereof. Um, a lot of the actual, what, what would count, I think, as religious conversation uh, occurs between Caroline and the Baron. And it's really built around the Baron being convinced that he is seeing magical acts performed directly in front of him specifically around uh, Mervyn Hogarth. I mean, that is a, a very interesting... Given how much time we spend with Mervyn, the idea that he is some sort of magus in uh, a satanic temple is very amusing. But for the Baron, it's dead serious. But the Baron feels that he sees these things happen in front of him. And frankly, he gets a little tweaked at a couple points and suggests that like what he believes is taking place is much more real than what Caroline believes is taking place because that's that's something that only she is experiencing. And her retort is very much one of, I don't need anyone else to know that this is happening. I believe it. Therefore, that is sufficient for me, which frankly is quite a <laughs> quite a conversation around um, religious faith. I mean, especially especially Christian religious faith and especially moving between, you know, different denominations uh, and dealing with Catholicism in, in particular. So it's, there's a lot happening in this novel that's only sort of suggested by the dialogue and by the actions uh, of the characters and really enhanced, I think, by the introduction of the uh, typing ghost who may or may not be a figment of uh, Caroline's mind or may actually be someone, a, char- a character, because it's on the page, a character tipping off Caroline that she herself is just a character. So while we have Lawrence getting suspicious, we have Caroline having this long sleepless night talking to the Baron And she grows suspicious about something independently that the Baron says. And it's kind of has to do with the Baron's fondness for Mrs. Jap, Lawrence's grandmother. And he describes to her this hat that Mrs. Jap was wearing two years ago, the, the last time he saw her. And Caroline is immediately suspicious because she knows that Mrs. Jap just recently bought this very unusual descriptive hat because she was with her when she bought it. 
And she bought it much more recently than two years ago, indicating that the Baron is not quite being truthful about the last time he saw Grandma Jap. Caroline sends a telegram to um, Lawrence uh, asking him to get in touch because something very mysterious is taking place, which is precisely the telegram that he sent to her. And he immediately thinks that there's some sort of confusion at the post, the post because he got back the same telegram he sent to her and so on. Um, so just weird things happening and coincidences and whatnot. So he comes back to, to see her, to check in, to see what's going on. And they go out one evening and, uh, run into and this chapter this this portion portrays a london nightlife that sounds fantastic they're bouncing around from place to place running into friends running people they don't want to see people they do want to see it's very lively it's this burst of vibrancy and color it, it, it feels like a london that is available to the upper middle class to wealthy and folks who are striving or in some ways connected to it. There's just, I don't know, there's there's a there's a liveliness to it that is really just intoxicating, I thought, um, as I was reading it. But while they're out, they run into uh, Lawrence's uncle Ernest and Eleanor Hogarth, uh, formerly uh, partner to uh, the Baron. And Ernest and Eleanor are basically like running a dance school of sorts together. Eleanor was Caroline's roommate in college. Ernest is gay and the family largely ignored him for most of his life up until he essentially indicated that he was no longer having relationships with men. So whatever else he is, he's not committing the physical act that they find to be uh, immoral at that point. But in the course of the conversation, Eleanor has her lighter out and Lawrence kind of fixates on it because he feels that the crest looks exactly like something he saw on uh, Merv or around Mervyn Hogarth. And he's wondering if there's some sort of connection and there are all sorts of connections, all sorts of things like kind of spiral out in every possible direction. But for the purposes of what we're talking about right now, when he brings this up to Caroline, she gets really hostile because she feels that this is, if there is someone writing them as characters, that this sucks, that this is entirely too pat, too neat, too cute. Why, you know, why are all these hints being dropped in all these different places for us to tie the mystery together in a neat little bow, right down to the fact that she even says, the Baron said something about your grandmother that would completely contribute to what you're saying, but I refuse to tell you what it is because no. I'm going to push, she's pushing back on the idea of being a character. This is not the form of a novel that would be any kind of novel she would want to read. No, she finds it, I, she decries the style, the the construction. She basically like insults the writer who then, the ghost typist, reflects on the fact of how hurt their feelings are that Caroline doesn't like how they write. I mean, are you all familiar with the Spanish uh, philosopher and writer uh, Miguel de Unamuno? No. Okay, he was he was a Basque. Um, this was one of the things that happened when I got a little too into Javier Marias, as I asked some friends who were specializing in Spanish literature about it, about him, and they put me on de Unamuno. He was Basque, a philosopher, wrote a bunch of novels and 
fictions, but he has one in particular where he's writing this story and the character uh, is very upset with how things are going and walks up to a house and knocks on the door. And the person that answers is Unamuno. And the character then proceeds for the next chapter to basically whinge at Unamuno about like, I wouldn't do these things. Why are you making me do this stuff? Like, what is happening here? And Unamuno's response is, dude, you're my character. You will do what I say you are to do. Just throwing that in there as like, when this stuff started to happen, my mind immediately raced back to to a, another Spaniard. Uh, oh man, would he be angry? If he, I wonder if he would actually be angry if he was called a Spaniard being like such a fervent Bosque, but that's a different question. And what years was he writing in? Um, oh, uh, he was the early part of the 20th century. Um, I believe he gave a speech at a university um, right before the Civil War, and he quickly figured out that the folks there were on the part of the phalanges, and then he changed his speech and decried what they were doing. I don't, I don't think he lived past the 40s. I think he was already in his 60s. I think he was late, born in the late 19th century. But That's okay. You've already established the point that I wanted to make, um, and not that two data points are proof. But when I'm reading all these meta elements of this book, I'm thinking, dang, like, why can't writers today who are trying to do the meta thing do it this this well? And I think it's because it's all kind of so self-serious or so often is uh, today when people are trying to play with, with, with meta kind of stuff. And I would not call this book silly, but she's having just like such a bloody blast with it. I mean, it's, I mean, it's fun. Like it is fun. She is having fun. We are having fun. The, a lot of the characters are having a lot of fun. There is something like joyous about the experience of this novel. And I mean that like on every possible register, like she is the writer, like I said, the writer's having fun, the characters having, we're having fun. And yeah, I mean, I think there there is a way that you could pull a lot of what she is playing with and this idea of how reality actually functions, that we're holograms and that it's that you can view time as a stack of pictures. And I talked to my Bizarrely, I talk to my kids. That's the analogy I use for my kids because they keep asking me about quantum reality and whatever, because that's just how the internet makes their brains these days, I guess. And that can all be very serious and scary. But why does it have to be? Like, why can't it just be a really good time? Why can't we have some tongue in cheek fun with it? I mean, and initially, Caroline takes it very seriously and is very unhappy with it. I think by the end, she's much more like, no, nah, this is actually okay. I can, I almost like I can work with this if this is what it is, and it doesn't have to be this. But she initially takes it so seriously and is so frustrated by it that she refuses to tell Lawrence what she knows that would con- would further Lawrence's theory that his grandmother is the ringleader of a gang of smugglers, which seems wild, but proves to be true. Um, he sees the evidence in the bread. He found diamonds in a loaf of bread, which, again, is really fun and really weird and totally Louisa Jap. Only she would think to hide the diamonds in a loaf of bread. She actually expresses a 
a comment at one point about um, the police that really just sort of sums up her character where um, towards the end of the novel, she's actually like telling Lawrence everything that she did, the entire shape of it. She actually says to him, like, I'm so sorry. You were so close to figuring us, us out. Like, clearly she loves her grandson in no small part because he is like her and he wants to like figure these things out. But um, once everything, once the diamonds were smuggled back into the country via various means, uh, she took even greater pains inside of the, of England to make sure that what they were doing wasn't visible. And Lawrence was like, but even though you're here and her response was, Oh, well, you know, the constable is a really nice guy, but all cops stick together at the end. And I'm like, okay, Miss Jap. And I think the very next line is, and, and Louisa is, I think they describe her as half gypsy, which can mean any number of things at that time. I mean, could be she's traveler, Roma, any number, but a basic distrust of the police, which I don't know, in some ways that might make this novel even more modern now than it was, than it was then. Right. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I I, I I am doing the thing that uh, Marius decries. I've lost my precise uh, starting point and failing to circle back to it. Well, we've we've kind of gotten um, gone all over the place with you know like the meta, and it doesn't have to be serious. It can be fun. And then we got into you know. Oh, go ahead. Did you remember? I remembered it. Um, this is the point of uh, refusing to make things all tidy and bring them back, bring it all back together. Lawrence suggests that Caroline uh, return with him to his grandmother's house, both to help help him figure out what's going on, but also to um, give her a little bit of a break. I mean, he's concerned that she's hearing things. And the typing ghost chimes in with, uh, they left by train that evening and da 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 da. And she, Caroline becomes furious. They will not travel the way that they've been prescribed to travel. And then all sorts of happenstance continues to kick in, preventing them from doing anything other than what was suggested, all leading to them leaving much later in the day than they ever planned and ending up in a really bad traffic accident. Badly breaks her leg, lands her in the hospital for a week, um, breaks his ribs, and it almost feels like at that moment a punishment from the writer for the character uh, going against what they'd already laid out. The character who just wouldn't wouldn't behave, wouldn't do what he was she was supposed to do. Which is just so very very clever and very smart. And uh, I've I probably have uh, exhausted my list of superlatives for <laughs> what <laughs> what Muriel Spark is doing here. Well, I know we don't want to spoil the story or, or, you know, give, um, all of the plot points away to the listeners, but what other things do we need to, to say, Tom, do you think about this, this really exceptional, exceptional book? Something that recommends it is, I mean, we've talked a lot about how interesting the characters are. Spark creates such fascinating and complete, uh, female characters. Um, each one of them very distinct from one another, um, very different motivations. I mean, they are, they are in some ways uh, fuller and more complete characters than a lot of the men. And I, I don't know. I thought that was really 
quite remarkable. This book does not um, fail the Bechtel test by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, we could continue on with kind of what we've done in the past of going kind of through the book a bit. Um, We've already resolved between ourselves that we're not going to give away the entirety of uh, novels uh, this season. Um, We want to make sure that if you're just if you're just listening to listen to us, that's fantastic. But you really do need to go read the books too. Um, I think in many respects, we've pretty much brought the novel up to the midway point. And from there, it unspools in some really interesting, fascinating ways. A lot of the characters um, recede into the background only to emerge um, re- or reemerge in unexpected, <laughs> in the case of Georgina Hogg, incredibly uncomfortable ways i think maybe a thing i would like to just sort of chat about or reflect on is i think the character that was most in control throughout this entire novel and possibly in control of the movement of the entire novel was louisa jepp after the accident uh part two of the novel begins and it begins with georgina hogg visiting louisa jepp and louisa handles georgina tells her so much about what Georgina is there to inquire upon and to potentially blackmail Louisa over tells her so much. And then with a simple statement completely removes Hogg's power, her ability to do anything about it. And she knew right from the start where this conversation was going to go and where it was going to end. And I don't think there's any other character in the novel that is so fully themselves, so fully aware of who they are and their circumstances as as Louisa. Yeah, Louisa Jap does not suffer fools. And he she's not your stereotypical little granny. She has a she has a I think an interesting relationship with her daughter, Helena. Helena is always kind of worrying about her mom and, you know, does she have enough money? Why won't she let us, you know, buy the mortgage on her house? I don't want to see her having to continue to worry about money, but Louisa Jap is just a very independent and kind of free-spirited woman and she doesn't she doesn't like I said truck in, you know, kind of the sentimental and emotional kind of things. She does have she does have her own interior life and maybe that's one of the plot points that I won't talk about in terms of what what happens to her later in in the book but yeah she she is really interesting and this novel itself just feels so original to me i mean i i noted that i'd read the the prime of miss jean brody before and love it and it's apparently the novel even in england that muriel spark is most known for but that novel as excellent as it is, it's not as original in my mind as this novel. It's it's a boarding school novel, you know, and so you go into it with kind of those expectations. And although it's a little crueler and a little um, more surprising at times than a normal boarding school novel, it doesn't it doesn't have the originality of the elements that come together with this novel. And 
some of the most original are the characters, like Louisa Jap, I think. Um, just like a really wonderfully drawn, quirky, weird, and very likable and fun character. I'm trying to think of characters similar to Louisa that I encountered, like, written prior to this. And I, I'm really, I mean, in some respects, I'm drawing a blank. And, and, and the way you're describing her, in some ways, she almost feels less like a grandmother and more like the independent uh, spinster aunt, you know, um, someone who's made their own way in the world and is perfectly happy and content with all that. But um, But also she feels, in some respects, like the mastermind behind a criminal conspiracy. Well, she feels like the typing ghost. She feels like she's written everything that's going to happen. Like everything happens in a way that frankly works out in Louisa Japp's favor. And, and she mostly describes it as being like a way to pass the time as much as anything else. I mean, this is, this is a remarkable, remarkable woman. Um, yeah, completely in control of her circumstances. Um, even much more so in a way, than her daughter, who is fabulously wealthy. But but she's also the perfect foil, too, because who's going to suspect this little old granny living in this, um, you know, in this little village um, outside of London, whose family is, you know, is not in want of money or any of the things that would typically motivate would motivate this this type of of theft and and conspiratorial crime which is a thing that she acknowledges in the novel like she outright says who's basically says like who's going to suspect me and if they suspect me of anything they're not going to think that I'm the one in charge like she knows that she is the perfect front and that makes her perfectly placed to run the whole thing this lady has figured out every possible angle and this is where and this is where this novel could have been so many different things. It could have been a crime caper. It could have been a a drawing room mystery. It could have been exploration of a woman's descent into madness. Uh, it could have been a, I don't know, a... Religious conversion novel. Exactly. That's what I was about to say next. It could have been a religious conversion novel. It could, be a, a, it could have been more about Lawrence and falling away from the faith. It, and it's somehow... All of those things and none of those things and something incredibly distinct and in my reading life, something very, very, very new. I would have loved to have been there when this book like hit hit the scene and just watch it go off like a bomb and just it, it seems like the praise at the time was, oh my, what do we have here? I'm also sure there were a lot of people who hated it. And not just because it went against their sensibilities, but also because they couldn't deny how good it was. Well, there's a quote on the back of my book, and I've got the New Directions edition. And it's uh, it's a quote by Evelyn Waugh, who acclaimed it as brilliantly original and fascinating. And yeah, it's that. Yeah. And that's that's someone who knows from a lot <laughs> of things. I don't know. Does that feel like a good place to to leave it, do you think? I do. Cool. Um, so we will have up on the Substack the uh, episode list of what's coming up. Um, also, just to tease this a little bit, um, on the Mural Spark episodes, it will be Lori and me. But uh, for a lot of the backlist episodes moving forward, we are going to have guests 
Um, we're inviting in um, some of our bookseller friends, um, a publisher friend or two, a writer or two, who are going to throw in their hat in the ring for uh, backlist titles for us to check out and discuss. Um, so the ones that are confirmed will also be included on that list, along with you know, their social handles if they have them. Um, one of them, Robin McLean, um, a favorite writer um, and friend of both of ours, yes. uh, has no social media handles, which is one of the reasons we love her. Um, and one of the reasons why she's such a kick-ass author, I'm sure. She doesn't have to worry yeah. about that stuff. She's a badass. Um, but yeah, we will, we will have that up in, uh, on the Substack, and um, yeah, we're, we're reading all... We are reading all 22 novels of uh, Muriel Spark. So this is going to be a hell of a season, and I am very much looking forward to it. Buckle in. 